Yo, 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 what's happening everybody? Welcome to the LTK Show. My name is Luther Kangas. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we've got an awesome guest who has a phenomenal story. All right, his name is Chris Coast. He's a former big leaguer. He broke in in 2006 with the Philadelphia Phillies, and he won a World Series with those Phillies in 2008. And... The crazy thing about his story, though, is he broke into the big leagues as a 33-year-old. And that just goes to show you, he grinded out for 11 years in the minor leagues. Persevered through a lot. Awesome story. You just, like, you don't break in as a 33-year-old. So it's kind of crazy. He does have a book out, so check it out. It's called The 33-Year-Old Rookie. It's a great read, great story, and it should be a movie. And I'm hoping at some point, there's talks that it it might be a movie, and I'm really hoping that at some point it does become one because I think it is absolutely worth it. And I know you guys are going to like this story, and I just appreciate Coaster for you taking the time and and joining us today and sharing most of that story. And, yeah, just sit back and enjoy this one, guys. It's a good one. So here it is, LTK Show with Chris Coast. Last one of the warm-up. We're going to go, the be- who's the best player that you played with and why? It's uh, it's impossible to answer that question with one guy, but if I had to limit it down, it would be the combination of Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins because of what they brought on a daily basis. Now, Ryan Howard had some moments, not moments, he had some stretches of time where he he carried us, Ryan Howard, with the power of the home runs. But what Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley were able to do on a daily basis, uh, Chase Utley in 2007, before he broke his hand, he got hit by a pitch, he was kind of on this MVP run. And it was just, it was crazy because he didn't steal a ton of bases, but he could if he needed to at that moment. If it was going to help us win, he, he found a way to do it. He'd get the big hit, massive hits. Jimmy Rollins on a day-to-day basis playing defense, and the year that he had in 2007 overall, he eventually, I believe, did win MVP in 2007. But I think that year he had over 20 homers, doubles, and triples, which is amazing, and stolen bases as well. And so though a combination of those two, I would, I would, uh, I would have to say those guys. Okay. Yeah, that was a that was a stacked team. We'll uh, we'll have to get into that later on um to kind of rewind start from the beginning here you're born in fargo is that right what were some of your um you know first baseball memories uh, so officially i was born in moorhead but i kind of claim fargo because i grew up in fargo uh, so fargo moorhead kind of you know a lot okay. of it is the same thing but right. uh, so my memories are i grew up in government housing in south fargo so most of my friends were from kind of all over the world really so we were either playing soccer, baseball, or volleyball. You know, it was kind of those three sports that were going on, Sandlot Baseball. So Sandlot Baseball with my buddies were my memories. Uh, I was an only child, so if if, uh, if I was at the lake with my family, I would go back to the gravel road and hit rocks with sticks and throw rocks and try to hit trees. Or skipping rocks actually was a lot of things I did as a kid to kind of build arm strength and kind of learn how to throw a sidearm or different arm angles. At the time, you don't know that, but yeah. But as you get older and you realize how your skills were developed, it was, you know, skipping rocks, uh, oddly enough, the arm angles, things like that. I would throw a tennis ball up against the steps, as kids would do in those days a lot more. Um, 
so those were my early baseball memories, Little League Baseball. I was also lucky. I had a grandfather who was pretty prevalent in my life as far as baseball goes, and that's he was specifically the reason why I fell in love with baseball early on and developed the skills. I was also very lucky. I was a little bit bigger and stronger than most kids my age, so it's at that age I really stood out baseball-wise, which only increased my love for the game. So my earliest memories were loving baseball more than anything in the world and wanting to be a major leaguer, and that was the only path I was going to take, and, and so those are my early memories. Of so baseball. right from the get, you had it pretty much in your head that you wanted to be in the big leagues. Yes, and it was partially because, you know, being in Fargo, you know, not the biggest baseball town, right. I was a well-above-average player that I just assumed I was the best 10-year-old who ever lived. Little <laughs> did I know that, you know, not that far outside of Fargo, all over the country and all over the world, there was 10-year-olds far and away better than me, but I didn't know that. So that's another reason why I chose that path, is I just assumed at 10 years old I was going to be the next, you know, Curry Puckett or Reggie Jackson, I guess, is who my early memories of uh, baseball were. Yeah. Um, so you went, did you go to Fargo South? Yes. Is that right? Okay. And then, so do they have high school ball there? Is it all just Legion ball? They do now. When I played, they it was just Legion ball. You know, so you when you're younger, you'd play Little League, go up into Babe Ruth baseball, maybe play 20 to 25 games a summer, and then that was it. So baseball was certainly limited. And mm. then... Lee, that's why Legion Baseball in the Fargo-Moorhead, West Fargo area has always been so big, is because, uh, you know, nice ballparks and well-organized, but without high school baseball in those days, Legion Baseball was so important. So when I played for Fargo, post two, we were playing anywhere from 50 to 60 games a summer, which for someone like me who basically baseball was my thing, I didn't. I played hockey for a while, but it limited us to just baseball after my sophomore year. Okay. The ability to play 50 to 60 games in the summer, I needed that. I mean, it was yeah. one of those things where I, because when the fault, when, when baseball ended, most of my teammates, they had football to look forward to. They loved baseball, but they also loved football, so they had something to go right into. Whereas with me, you know, that summer was my World Series every year. Uh-huh. Um, so were you, I'm curious to know, were you recruited out of high school? Um, minimally. I My senior year of Legion Baseball, I had a, a little bit of attention, but then I had a back issue, so I missed a, uh, most of my senior year of Legion. Um, I got off okay. to a pretty good start, but so at the end of the season, I came back and was able to pitch a little bit, and so my only real offer was a junior college in Illinois. So I, you know, really wasn't recruited by Concordia or NDSU or you know anywhere else in our area, uh-huh. and not Mayville State or anywhere else. So. In fact, the only reason I was recruited to this school in Illinois was my team, two of my teammates from Fargo from the previous years had chosen that school. So the coach had a good experience with Fargo players. So without even seeing me, he offered me like a minimal scholarship, and that's why I chose that school. Okay, so the, and that was Kishwaukee, is that right? Yes. Kishwaukee Community College. Okay, and you spent one year there. And then transferred back to Concordia. What what was the reasoning behind that? When I went to junior college, 
I was exclusively a pitcher. So other than hit allowing us to hit occasional fungos to infielders, we did not touch a bat. Okay. And, and I, I came to accept it, to be honest with you. I was a pretty good pitcher, but I wasn't a great pitcher, but I could compete. I, uh, the junior college I went to was really good. We were a World Series-type te- Division One uh, junior college-type team. Okay. Most of our pitchers went on to be drafted, were well over 90. I was about 85 to 87 on a good day. But a nice curveball, so I could compete. Uh, when I when I, when our season ended, and I came back to Fargo, our coach, who was basically our entire program, had taken a job with the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. So all of the freshmen who would return decided to transfer somewhere else. Uh-huh. I was gonna. I actually was going to transfer to Triton Community College, which is right in Chicago, where Kirby Puckett went, uh, and just be a pitcher. I came back, started playing town ball with uh, Glendon back in those days mm-hmm. uh, they the first game they wanted me to play third base I kind of refused because I figured I can't do this anymore but we only had nine guys so I had to play third base and just taking a little bit of batting practice started playing third base a little bit more the bat came around and after about two weeks of hitting I knew that I couldn't go back and just be a pitcher so uh, when I played for Glennon I had about four Concordia teammates they convinced me to at least consider Concordia. At first, I thought they were crazy. Uh, <laughs> met with Bucky, who and I and I had known Bucky from Legion Ball back in the day, so he wasn't a total total stranger, even though I didn't really know him very well. But after meeting with him, the idea to be able to both pitch and hit mm-hmm. Concordia at that point, and then being back home again. Uh, and at the time, Concordia had just won the conference the previous year, so the program was pretty strong at the time, and uh, it. it after considering a little bit longer, it became an easy choice for me. Okay. And then you go to Concordia. Um, you have a great three years there. You're three-time league MVP, three-time All-American in Division III. Um, I'm just curious, like, what what are some of the things that stand out for you that you learned in your playing days at Concordia? Well, it was, as you know, when you play for a guy like Bucky, you learn so much more than just how to play baseball. He's an amazing baseball coach, specifically from the baseball side of things, but you really learn what it's like to be a good person, a good American, a good citizen, a good father, a good husband, good employee, good boss, whatever whatever mm-hmm. a person is going to be. You know, Bucky is just an amazing example, amazing role model. Uh, you learn how to be a great teammate. That was the thing. Even now as the head coach at Concordia, we preach that constantly because that was one of Bucky's things was make sure at all times, you know, you, are you, whatever you're doing, are you being a good teammate? So that was a lot of it. But from the baseball side of things, I would say the biggest thing Concordia did for me was provide me with the avenue to reach my potential. I mean, you know, Bucky could see the kind of player I was. He allowed me to both pitch and hit. Uh, I had success. I was able to build the confidence I needed because when I was at junior college, I loved baseball, but professional baseball was not an option. It was not going to be, I wasn't good enough to be a pitcher, but going to Concordia, all of a sudden the confidence kicked in, the potential to be a professional baseball player started to uh, you know flame up again I guess you could say so mm-hmm. that's a lot of the many things Concordia did for me from the baseball side of things the confidence is really what what got me 
Okay. Um, what were some of your highlights, like, as far as from a team standpoint? I know you guys, your senior year, you guys had a great team. Um, I think you won the conference. You ended up going to play in the regionals. And I, I think from what Kovash told me, I'm pretty sure you guys faced Jared Washburn in that regional. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. So my, my the two memories were my my sophomore year so my first year we we end up tying for the conference we were 17 and 3 had an amazing year uh go to the regionals lose to wisconsin oshkosh to go to the world series then my junior year the next year on paper i we all thought we were maybe even a little bit stronger but we just came up short then my senior year we did not think we were going to be quite as strong but we had some young guys emerge who were amazing uh end up winning the conference on the last game of the season and really? yes, we uh, we faced Jared Washburn, and I remember it really well because when we faced him, there was a, a, the most scouts any of us had ever seen at a Division three baseball game. I mean, uh, there was probably between 10 and 12 radar guns that would go up every time that he would lift his <laughs> leg and throw, uh-huh. and, and he was he was pretty awesome. Uh, I had a pretty good game myself, and so I, you know, I thought that maybe with all the scouts there and the kind of seasons I had, and what I did against a guy like Jared Washburn would certainly help, but facing a guy like Jared Washburn was pretty awesome because he was, you know, for a Division three baseball player, a left-hander to be throwing, you know, 92 to 94 with the razor blade slider, it was like, why is he not at Vanderbilt, for right. example? He, instead, he's at Wisconsin Oshkosh. It was, it was pretty pretty cool to face a guy like that. Yeah, so what, did you go what, two for three off him, or what was, I think... I thought I remember Kovash telling me that you got a couple of knocks off him. Yeah, it was against him. I was two for two with a home run and a uh, double. I believe is what it was. So you went yard uh, on him. What fastball or what? It was just kind of like a hanging slider and wind blown out a little bit. And those are the days where the the bats weren't quite juiced like they eventually became. But the you know they weren't BB core bats. The ballpark wasn't real big. I mean, I hit it well. But yeah. it was one of those where I've hit other balls better that maybe didn't go out, but it was just a combination of it was a w- nice warm day, slight breeze blown out, hanging slider, um, and plus, and, and then the, once again, the motivation of knowing that, boy, if you have a good game with scouts like that, maybe you have a chance to get drafted. So there was that. that Hearing you describe this makes me know that you didn't pimp the Smoltz home run because you're, pre- you're pretty modest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, you know, I've pimped some home runs, but not out of like uh, trying to be cocky or whatever else, but more of like it, it's hard to like the John Smoltz one. Also, when I joke about when I when I joke to people and I say that I actually did pimp it, and I didn't pimp it, but I when I joke and I say I'm like, well, you never know, that might be the last one I ever hit, so I got to <laughs> joke. So that's that's how I'd respond to some of those. Take an extra second to savor it. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. After senior year, um, obviously you had a great college career. Uh, I'm just wondering, what were your prospects coming out of college as far as professionally? So getting back to the Jared Washburn game, we eventually lost. Our season was over, and it was it was pretty tough because we had just, you know, it was the end of our college career. Uh, so no matter what the situation is, when you're when a career ends, you're a little bit sad, but after the game and, and I had a really good tournament besides with scouts and I remember the bus ride back to Moorhead from Oshkosh thinking to myself boy I, there's no way that I do not get drafted in fact I mean I was like convinced like after that even if it's the last pick in the draft or a free agent sign or something like that I was just like I'm I'm going to get drafted so 
a, f- a couple weeks went by before the actual draft. I knew I wouldn't be drafted in the probably the first day. I, if, as a Division three guy, if I was going to get drafted at all, it'd be really late. But that's all I cared. I was like, j- just a shot, just an opportunity to go to the minor right. leagues, c- compete with these guys. So when dr- the first draft day came and went, and I wasn't drafted as expected, when the second draft day came along, and the, now keep in mind this was 1995, no cell phones, uh, still rotary phones to some extent, and I remember going to like Kmart and buying an answering machine because if a team called, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I got the message and so on and yeah. so forth. So I in the basement <laughs> where I had my phone, I I set up an answering machine. I remember because I had gotten several letters that year from various teams, Pirates, Dodgers, Red Sox, and, you know, maybe five or six other, you know, just standard form letters that they send to guys who maybe have a, a chance to get drafted. Nothing major, but I still had hopes. I get back to my answer machine. I run down the road to Taco Bell down there by Concordia, walk back. Again, I see the blinking light. I push the button, and here's how the message went. Hey Chris, this is uh, you know John McAdams with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Just want- hey, just kidding, Chris. This is your uncle Steve. I just wanted to know if anybody was calling <laughs> oh, no. after yet. And so it's my uncle Steve, <laughs> oh, no. who you know not the most ath- amazing, amazing guy, but not the most athletic-minded guy. So he didn't quite understand what that message did to me at the time. Because here I'm thinking it's a dude from the Los Angeles Dodgers, and I'm like, oh. holy crap! Here it is, my dream. You know, the dream I. That myself and my family have been dying for my whole life, and then all of a sudden, nah, just you know, just calling to see if anybody's called, you know, and <laughs> wow. you know, and, and it, it was kind of at that moment because it was getting really late in the process. It was at that moment that I realized I probably wasn't getting drafted. So I wasn't mad at my uncle Steve. It was more so the realization that, holy crap, I'm I'm not going to get drafted. This my might baseball not happen. Career is over. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, all right, so moving forward from there, uh, looks like you played that 95 season with Brainerd in the North Central League. Is that right? Yep, yep. And so when I wasn't drafted, you know, I was in, you know, pretty dire straits. I thought my baseball career was over. Luckily, independent baseball had really blossomed at various parts of the country and in Canada. Uh, The Northern League with the St. Paul Saints was massive at the time, and, and that helped kind of spark other leagues. Uh, a league in Brainerd, uh, based kind of around Brainerd, had had started to brew, and I got a tryout with them as a third baseman. Had a, just an amazing tryout that day. They signed me a month later. That league actually went bankrupt, so then I was able to catch up or catch on with the team in Brandon, Manitoba, a okay. very similar league, independent league. I went there. That so the summer of 1995, when that season ended, all of a sudden about September, it was announced that Fargo was going to get an independent team. So that's okay. That's kind of how that started. So I, I went to Brainerd, then Brandon, Manitoba, just playing these lowly independent leagues and having the time of my life. Because even though I was making 700 bucks a month, I went from you know paying Concordia tuition essentially to play baseball to now I'm getting paid even though it wasn't very much. I felt like a billionaire. I'm, I'm, I could actually tell people, hey, I'm a professional baseball player. It was pretty cool. Yeah, you get paid to play ball. That's awesome. Um, so how, how did that opportunity come about with, with Fargo? Um, how did you end up getting your shot there in 96? Yeah, it wasn't an easy process because I was still property of the other of the team in Brandon. Oh, okay. So when it was announced that Fargo was going to get a team and they were going to build this nice, beautiful ballpark, it was like, I got, I got to get on this team. This is going to mm-hmm. be amazing. You know, yeah. to play in my hometown and 
Uh, hopefully the city, you know, gets behind it, things like that. So right away I get a call from, they had just hired a manager, Doug Simonick, and I had never met him, obviously, just read what I read about him in the newspapers and heard on the radio and heard his when they would do a radio show with him and this pretty gruff, very to-the-point personality. All of a sudden, one day, he gives me a call and says, Hey, Chris, uh, we're going to try to sign you. We're going to try to get you on the team. And I was ecstatic. All of a sudden, without even having a trout, I'm on the team. And then he calls me back the next day and says, Chris, i got to be honest with you. You're probably not good enough to be on this team. We're bringing a lot of double A and triple A guys. The only reason I wanted to sign you in the first place was because I was told I had to because we need a local guy. This was probably December of 1995 by this point. So I was essentially signed or going to be signed for promotional purposes. And he was just trying to be honest with me and tell me that you're only being signed for promotional purposes. You're not, you won't be good enough. So even though it sounds kind of rough, he was being honest. He was, yeah. he was telling me in his version of the truth. And so they eventually worked out a deal with the Brandon team. They bought my contract for, you know, not very much, but they purchased it. So now I'm a member of the Red Hawks, but then I'll, I'm ecstatic that I'm on the team, but at the same time, I've got a guy tell me that I'm not good enough. So you could imagine the, uh, the motivation I had. Yeah. So, I was going to ask if that left a pretty sizable chip on your shoulder. Yes, absolutely. Which, you know, I had already had one, you know, from not being drafted and things like that. So now I got a guy tell me, and like I said, I didn't, I wasn't mad at Doug Simonick for telling me this. It was the best thing he could have done, but I got off the phone with Doug after him telling me that I called Bucky Burgau and immediately we were hitting in the cages at Concordia. I went to the YMCA, worked out. I did that pretty much every day up until May when the team rolled into town. Mm-hmm. And I just kept playing those words in my head. You have no chance to make this team. You have no chance to make this team. And it was this massive motivation. Um, and then, not to mention, you could see the excitement from that moment in December through May. The ballpark was being built, and, and my wife and I would drive by there and kind of see the ballpark being built in these different stages. And, you know, listen to the radio shows and listen to the news and reading the articles in the paper and seeing how ticket sales were going and seeing how successful this had the potential to be. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I had to be on this team. And so not only him telling me I wasn't good enough, but the motivation of being a part of something like that. It was like it was on par with me trying to make the major leagues. It was pretty, the motivation was incredible. Did you ever have uh, a moment with that gentleman to tell him, ha ha, look at me? I don't know if that's your style, but I certainly would. Hey, you were a little bit wrong about me there, bud. I made it no, to the absolutely, show. Absolutely, yes. And him and I are still pretty close to this day. I mean, he was he was my manager for my four years there, and he was a manager up until recently for the longest time. And so we became pretty close because uh, he was able to recognize. I'll tip my cap to him. When he saw me in person and saw how prepared I was, he went from telling me, here's how the story goes. This is one of my favorite stories, actually, was he gets to town. The whole team comes into town. He sees me practice for a couple of days. And he starts to like what he sees. And he's like, i got to be honest with you, you surprised me. You're better than I thought you were. You have a chance to make this team. And about three days later, he tells me, hey, you're on the, you know what, you're on the team. And I, I ask him, okay, you know, cool, now what do I got to do to become a starter on the team? He's like, you have no chance to be a starter on this team. Okay, so I went from no chance to make the team to, okay, you might make the team, to now you made the team, and now but you have no chance to be a starter on this team. Well, the... The second baseman they, they had signed 
was this little Hawaiian kid who was an All-American at either USC or George Washington. I can't remember exactly where he went to college, but he was a really good player. He had kind of a banged-up finger and didn't do as well. So they put me at second baseman or at second base just to kind of hold it down, and I just happened to play really well during that short time period. And all of a sudden, I'm the starting second baseman. Really? On opening day, I'm the starting second baseman. Three days later, the biggest moment of my entire career happens. We, I'm starting second baseman for the first two games. Life is amazing. I'm not even supposed to be on the team. Certainly not supposed to be a starter. Now I'm uh-huh. the second baseman, batting second. Life was amazing. I was making 700 bucks a month, and I felt like a billionaire, right? <laughs> um, third game of the season. We're on the bus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, about to go to a day game, a Sunday day game on the way to the ballpark. And Doug Semenuk, our manager, comes on the bus. He's like, guys, we have no catcher. Uh, our catcher was Mike Crosby. He had just got signed by the then Montreal Expos organization. So he was already on a plane that morning to, like, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or wherever uh-huh. he was going. So we had no catcher. He's like, he's like, I, I got a line on some catchers coming in, but he, they won't be here by game time. We need a catcher. And I was like, what the hell? I, I'm, I'm, what do I got to lose, right? I'm the starting second baseman. If it doesn't work. So I rose my hand, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I'll do it. And the look on his face was like, oh, we, you know, we're in trouble. But he had no choice because, I mean, honestly, if you haven't been a catcher, who really wants to catch, especially at that level when guys are throwing anywhere from 89 to 94 with razor blade sliders. Nobody re- People might say they want to catch, but they don't, right? It takes I mean, one I mean, thumb I, jam to realize you don't want to be doing that. <laughs> absolutely. So, but, but I gave it a try, and uh, the pitcher that day was Tim Smith, and he was about he was that guy I just described. He's anywhere from eighty nine to about ninety two with a hard sinker and a nasty slider that he would throw in the dirt with two strikes to strike guys out. I knew what I was getting myself into, but um, I went back to what my grandfather said when I was fourteen. He kept telling me, you know, uh, you need to become a if you want to be a major leaguer, it's not going to be by pitching; it's going to be by becoming a catcher. But I was fourteen. I thought he was full of crap, so I knew every answer to every you know, thing in the world at the age of 14. So I didn't listen. I, you know, pitched and played third or whatever else. So it was my opportunity to kind of to see how that would work. The game went pretty well. We ended up winning. And believe me, I had my moments of chasing the ball to the backstop, but things went well. I, you know, threw some guys out, got some hits, We but we kept winning games. And so rather than finding a starting catcher, they found me a backup catcher. So I was catching you know five six days a week i would uh play second base on occasion but i just all of a sudden became a catcher that day and just me raising my hand at that one moment put me on my path to major league because if i had not rose my hand if i had not become a catcher that day you know don't get me wrong life would have been good i'd had a nice independent career had fun but at some point life would have to move on and and Certainly, I would not have been a major leaguer if not. You're not wearing that big-ass Phillies ring for the championship <laughs> either, are you? <laughs> right. Yep. Um, w- when you made the transition to catcher, like who did you rely on? I think Litz told me he you might have called him up for some pointers. Well, Litz was actually there at the time, Ron Litz. So he, so oh, he was. He was. Okay. Cody, yeah, so he was our bullpen catcher. So that's what was that's more right. amazing about it. You know, one of my best friends and one of my favorite teammates I ever had was essentially my roommate on the road. When we would go on the road, Ron, Ronnie was my roommate. That's awesome. And so I was able to lean on him a little bit, and it was kind of a weird scenario where 
you know, Ronnie was an amazing catcher, and I'm his college teammate, and now I'm a starting catcher for a professional team. It was this this weird dynamic. So I relied on Ronnie quite a bit, but also Doug Simonick, our manager, was a catcher for eight years in the minor leagues, so he was able to help too. But honestly, to this day, the most important thing I ever learned about catching was something Doug Simonick told me on day one, catch the damn ball. (laughs) (laughs) And it's... It sounds so simple, so elementary, right? But it is so it, it's it gets overlooked. Everyone wants to do this and do that and receiving and which is all important stuff, don't get me wrong. But seriously, you gotta catch the ball. That's it's in the title, right? Catcher. So um that's if I could tell any catcher one piece of advice, it's seriously catch the ball. And so he didn't worry about receiving, he didn't worry about this. He goes, If the ball's in the dirt, try to block it. If a runner runs to second or tries to steal, do your best, try to throw him out. But catch every single ball and so that's all i focused on keep it simple um so you had some success i mean you hit i think you hit 323 in those four seasons and um you know you you got your opportunity and you start to put up numbers just kind of take us through your your ride with the red hawks um just putting up numbers and i think you were a two-time like baseball america all independent you know you're having a lot of success what did it take to, I guess, kind of go to the next level and ultimately be claimed by a team which ended up being the Indians? Yeah, playing for the Red Hawks was pretty amazing. It was the community really took to the team. They made us all feel like major leaguers. Every year you'd see you know, these few new players come to town from California, Arizona, New York, wherever, all over the country, and they're preconceived notion of Fargo was dirt roads and covered wagons and you know, <laughs> things like that. And within a week, they were all like, boy, this, what an amazing place to play baseball. What an amazing, we had no idea Fargo-Moorhead was like this, you know. So uh, sort of as a, someone from the Fargo-Moorhead area, to see that it would have made me incredibly proud to be from where we're from. And not to mention the way the crowd treated us. In the off season in December, I'd, I'd walk through West Acres Mall in Fargo, and I'd get recognized. Not yeah. by people I knew, but just by people who recognized me from being a Red Hawk player. It was pretty awesome. I mean, yeah, once again, we felt like major leaguers. So I got really comfortable being a Red Hawk, and I was also fortunate they hired me in the front office. So my full-time job was working in the office, you know, doing uh, – I eventually they named me the director of merchandising, so I, like, ran the souvenir shop, which was pretty sweet. Um, I did sales and marketing, so I was – year-round I was trying to help the team in some capacity it was I could not have found myself in a in a better situation it wasn't making yeah. a lot of money but once again I felt like a millionaire so at the end of the 1999 season which was after my fourth season there at the season ended and I had another good season I get a call from the Cleveland Indians and it was a you know regional scout telling me that he wanted to they the Indians wanted to sign me and bring me to spring training the next year and I as hard as this is to believe, I initially I turned it down. I, really? For all the reasons I had just mentioned, I had become really comfortable being in Fargo. I was married. I, um, with my wife just had our first daughter a few months previous. Uh, life was great. I was hey, living the like dream. League, yeah, I was. I was playing uh, my own version of Major League Baseball in Fargo, and I had a career. I mean, I, it's something I didn't want to give up. And about 10 minutes after turning down the innings, I got a call from Doug Simonick, and he essentially chewed me out. He was like, you know, this is why every independent player plays baseball is to get this opportunity, so on and so forth. And I, mm-hmm. I really didn't agree at the time. And then he said these words. He goes, you're going to wake up 
in your bed when you're 50 years old and you're going to have regrets. You're going to wonder what would have happened. And when he said that, the light bulb went off. It was like a slap across the face. Yeah. And I knew he was right. So I called the Indians back up. Uh, they signed me. I went to spring tra- Actually, I went to uh, instructional league that year a few weeks later with them, which was a great opportunity so they could actually see me a little bit. And I was still in kind of baseball shape. I uh, went to spring training. You know, I was essentially, I didn't really make a team out of spring training. I was put on the phantom disabled list. They liked me enough to keep me around. And then a guy got injured on opening day. So I got sent to double A right away. Didn't play much. And, um, you know, that was kind of the, that was the next, getting signed by the Indians was the next step. I mean, raising my hand to become a catcher set everything in motion, really, to, towards the major leagues. But getting signed by the Indians and going to spring training that year was, was a big step also. Yeah, so, and that was the year 2000. Um, I want to know, like, what was the biggest difference between independent ball and double A ball from a, a performance standpoint? I would say in those days, the Northern League, like the Red Hawks and Saints, on a given day would be a good double A, maybe even triple A type level based on who might be pitching, you know, things like that. I, yeah. When I was with the Red Hawks, I remember we once signed a guy in 1997 who previous week was triple A pitcher of the week. You know, he had, really? he had a good two starts, but they just didn't need him anymore. He got released. So this is a guy who was triple A pitcher of the week and got released. And now he's pitching in the Northern League, you know. So wow. yeah. when I went to Double A, I was I was expecting maybe I was expecting too high of a level. I my expectations were because I had seen plenty of Northern League players like myself who had gotten signed get released. Like they never, like rarely did they ever stick. And so I was like, boy, Double A, Triple A, that's just that level's got to be just incredible. So when I went to spring training that year and kind of I saw how I actually fit in and, and where my skills. Uh, could bring me and, and where I fit in. I still have the utmost respect for double and triple A, but I realized, boy, I do in fact belong. I, I can play with these guys, if not better. And so uh, when I went to double A that year, I didn't play much right away. It was a really young double A team full of prospects. So, of course, those guys were going to play, and I understood that that was fine. Uh, my manager, who was Eric Wedge at the time, he was a big believer in me. So he was kind of, his hands were tied for the most part, but he, anytime he'd get me in there, he'd let me play. And every time I played, I just, I racked up a few hits, played well on defense, played all over the field. And before I know I'm playing twice a week, then I'm playing three times a week. And all of a sudden, before you know it, I'm playing like five times a week. And then before you know it, I'm hitting like 370 in double A. And I'm like, how's this happening? I was in, you know, independent ball last year thinking double A was the major leagues and I'm in 370. Right. And then my phone rings and it's Eric Wedge. He's, hey, you're going to triple A. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to triple A. <laughs> and, and at the time, triple uh, A with the Indians was in Buffalo. And Buffalo at the time historically was the best place to play triple-a baseball the 15,000 fans a game this big beautiful stadium and they were being affiliated with the indians in those days that's when the indians were really really good at the major league level so their triple-a team was just incredible they were stacked you know uh free the whole team full of former major leaguers and things like that so i go there and i didn't i didn't play much right away in triple-a but that was the next step is getting to triple-a and i wasn't supposed to play i was just an extra guy third catcher extra infielder you know, 23rd man on the roster, so on and so forth. And so now I go from being a double-A and hitting 370, now I'm in triple-A. So that was the next step. Okay. So you go there, and then did you, was that kind of the same same deal? You weren't supposed to start. 
you know, you kind of had to hit your way into the lineup. How, how did that work out for you? Right. So same kind of a deal. I was just an extra guy, and I, and I knew that at the time. Once again, Buffalo was uh, the best team in AAA. I mean, there was essentially a AAA All Star, former major leaguer at pretty much every position, or a massive prospect. So you were and stuck. So just, right. So I'm, with, and I was believe me, and I was fine with that because just to be associated with a team like that was. Just getting the it's daily rest, the daily yeah. Be, yeah, being around those guys, catching those guys in bullpens, hanging out in the bullpen with, you know, former closers in the major leagues and things like that. It was pretty. It was pretty amazing. I was. I wasn't in awe. I knew I could. I knew I, you know, had earned the right to be there. That but you belonged. It, it, right, and so it wasn't this. In the past, it was. Well, I know I should be playing, but at, th- at this moment, it wasn't that. And all of a sudden, what happened was we were in Indianapolis, and playing against, I think it was the Brewers organization back in those days. And our, we had we had two catchers, both who had pretty significant time in the major leagues. Our starting catcher was Bobby Hughes. I'm out in the bullpen, and he gets run over at the plate pretty viciously, dislocates his shoulder, tears up his knee, so he's done. Our other catcher, Jesse Levis, had kind of a bad finger and he gets like he so he goes in and he gets hurt he comes out so all of a sudden i go from the bullpen to now i'm the starting catcher on a triple a team both catchers in the same game got hurt i'm in there catching and i i finished you know i just kind of finished up that game i get to start the next game have like a home run a double cup you know i three or four hits in my first game played the next game after that get like three or four more hits i'm like what's going on here i went from just being happy to be in triple a to both catchers getting hurt back to back now i'm the starting catcher in triple a on the best team in triple a by the way with the indians and and tearing it up i went from you know batting ninth to all of a sudden i'm batting eighth then i'm batting sixth and all of a sudden on occasion not every day i'm batting third then I'm batting second. Then I'm batting fifth. I'm like, I mean, Mark Witten was on the team in those days. You know, I mean, uh, Charles Nagy, Jarrett Wright were on the team in those days. I mean, these wow. are major leaguers who pitched in the World Series, you know, things like that. So I'm on the – Dave Hollins was on the team. Um, it, it was just – it was one of those situations where I'm with all these major leaguers, many of them who were in all-star games in the major leagues, and I'm batting fourth on occasion. I'm batting fifth. I'm the starting catcher. And so – you know the the path kind of lined up, the stars aligned, and and that was just a massive opportunity because the they I was kind of forced into the lineup, and now I was able to prove that not only do I belong in the minor leagues, but I can compete at a Triple A level. It was pretty pretty surreal. Yeah, I think uh, having listened thus far, there's there's a kind of a common theme, and I want to know if you agree with this. It seems like every time you got an opportunity. He, he absolutely seized it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no question. And a lot of this goes back to when I told the story about trying to make the Red Hawks and how I would call up Bucky Burgo and we'd go hit literally every day. Even on Christmas, him and I would go to Concordia and hit. Uh, New Year's Day, when everything was shut down, Bucky and I would go to Concordia and hit. And I'd go to the Y. I knew the people who ran the YMCA. So I would go in even after hours when the building was shut and work out. And I did things like that. So the preparation side of things. So... Every time that I was given an opportunity, it was I, I was mentally, physically prepared. So when I got these chances, it was, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to take advantage of it was when that opportunity came along, you know, mentally the chip on my shoulder, number one, that helped, and then number two, just physically being prepared. So it was because uh, c- a lot of these moments, if I hadn't done well immediately, once again, I'd have been back in the Northern League playing for the Red Hawks and things like that. 
Right. I mean, I so as you're saying, uh, you know, you got plugged in, you hit a home run, that first full game of catcher. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, man, if you go 0 for 3 there, that might be it. You know, Absolutely. I mean, it's and, crazy. And the, yeah. And that, that game, too, that first start at AAA was against Ben Sheets. Wow, uh, really? Yeah, back, yeah, and he had just come fresh off the Olympics, I believe. That was year 2000. And it was, I believe it was his first AAA start. And it was my first AAA start. And I was probably batting eighth or ninth in the lineup that day. And if you ever watched Ben Sheets back in the day, he had one of the league's best curveballs. And it was on a, he, he just hung a curveball, and I, I hit a home run off it. And, um, that's kind of another one of those stories too. And he, he threw a great game and I, you know, we both had pretty good first triple A starts, but, um, the amount of names I, and I had kind of forgotten that until, you know, us doing this podcast right now, I forgot that it was Ben Sheets. So that's pretty cool too. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, you're putting up numbers in triple A, you're, you're advancing at a, you know, pretty good clip here. And, you know, it, that's in the year 2000, we're talking, but you didn't break in, 2006 you had five more years six more seat like to grind it out like i mean what take us through those next four years and why i guess why it took so long almost yeah and it's 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 hard to like label it as to one particular thing because over the course of five six years there's so many i mean think all the things that could happen over the course of you know four or five six years but what had happened was is getting to AAA in 2000 really solidified me as a as a capable AAA player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, my ability to play a lot of different positions, my ability to be be a catcher, uh, being a little bit older at the t- at the in 2000 I would have been 27 years old, so I was older than your average AA. You're not AAA, your hot prospect, right? Right, right. So I was a great. Uh, I, I was the kind of minor league player that I would say there was about 10 to 12 organizations back in the day that really tried to stack their AAA teams with guys like me uh, who were good, who could help their teams win, but they had no intention of ever bringing them to the major leagues, which is fine. They wanted they, they wanted uh, not all organizations were that way, but the, the good ones, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the in those days the Indians, there was a bunch of organizations that wanted their AAA team to be as good as they can make it, so they would pay really well for AAA free agents. And so as long as I didn't get hurt, as long as I continued to just perform decently, I was always going to have a AAA job. Because at, at the end of every year, I was essentially, I became a free agent at the end of every year. Okay. And I, I barely ever went a week into the offseason without having gotten offers from, from teams once they were able to reach out to me. Um, and so all of a sudden I went from the Northern League making 700 bucks a month to, in 2001, now I'm making 7000 a month to play baseball. Now granted, it's five months, you make 35000 a year, it's not a ton of money, but all of a sudden making $35,000 a year to play AAA baseball, wow, what a life, right? <laughs> right, um, And so... So 2001, I had another you know decent year. I had a, a broken finger that kind of set me back at a certain time. Um, so I had a decent year. Uh, 2002, I go back to the Indians organization. Uh, I think that year I was making maybe eight thousand a year, um, which once again was amazing. And I got off to just an insane start. Uh, led the league in batting about the first two months of the season, and made the All Star team, our Triple A All Star team that year. Um, got I cooled down towards the end of the year because most of the year I figured at some point I would get a call up. Even if yeah, I was going to ask up, you that. 
Yep. Um, but it's, I kind of I I hit three fifty or higher most of the year, and then the last month I just really cooled off. I just you know for whatever reason and um, didn't get the call up, which wasn't a big surprise. I kind of at the end of the year it wasn't like I was devastated. I knew it wasn't good at all. However, the next massive step in my career was having established myself as an above average AAA player now. Uh, winter ball play. I got an offer to play in Mexico, making a little bit more money there, and that was really a big step because it uh, allowed me to play in the offseason, make a little bit more money, uh, even become a better player, a more even a more well-rounded player because mentally and physically, if, if an American can go to a place like Mexico or Venezuela, the Dominican, the winner, and succeed, you can prove to a major league team that you know you're resilient. You can handle pressure because playing in Mexico and Venezuela, Dominican, it's not easy. There's a language barrier for a lot of guys. I happen to speak Spanish, so I was luckier than most. But okay. there's uh, there's a lot of you know the stressors and things like that. So I was able to go there and kind of solidify myself there. So I was basically, I was lucky to be in a, in Mexico, a really good team. So I was playing baseball, including the playoffs, and I was. Uh, I was lucky that I was on a Mexican league team who always made the playoffs and AAA teams who always went deep in the playoffs. So there was like a three-year period from 2002 to 2005 or 2004 where I was home probably three weeks total all year because I was playing baseball. And it it was tough at times, but it was also pretty awesome because... I was making enough money to, I, I wasn't going to get rich, obviously, but, and it could end in any moment, but I was now, you know, supporting the family and, and becoming, even at the age of 30, 31, continuing to be, to get better, which, you know, at those ages, you're not really supposed to get better, but I was because I was now playing baseball at a variety of, of high levels in different countries and, and most importantly, having fun. That was the other thing too, is baseball was still a ton of fun i was good at it i loved to do it um everywhere i went i was i was having success and being on good teams so all those kind of stars aligning were were part of it yeah so take us into now 2006 um well actually was it 2005 where where you latched on with the phillies organization is that right so yeah i was in triple a with the phillies in 2005 yes okay and then 2006 was was obviously a big year for you, um, and I know specifically that spring training. You had an unbelievable spring training. Kind of take us through, I guess, the start of that. And I know you got a ton of opportunity to play uh, that spring, but let's talk about that a little bit. Right, and so I'm going to start with with Mexico that year. So I I, I had just gotten done with our Mexican league season. I had another good uh, season there. And so when guys who play winter ball like I did, when you show up to spring training, you're in more baseball shape than most guys. Like even Pretty a guy sharp. like Chase Sutley, right, like like I'm ready to hit 95 miles an hour. You know, yeah. I'm ready to hit a curveball without knowing a curveball's coming because not that long ago I was doing it. So even a guy like Chase Utley, who's a substantially more talented player than me, at that moment, first day of spring training, I'm more baseball ready than, than those guys usually. And it always showed. And so the first day of live batting practice where the pitch our pitchers are facing our hitters. Now, they usually tell you what's coming, but most hitters don't like doing it. You, you break your bat, you got no incentive, it's kind of you know, one of those things. But me, I love doing it because I was constantly trying to prove myself, and if I know a 100-mile-an-hour fastball is coming, 
I know I got a chance to hit it. That was my mentality. And so, like, the first round of live batting practice, I'm facing a, a young Canadian uh, by the name of Scott Matheson. He was throwing earlier because he was getting ready for the World Baseball Classic that year. And he was about 95 to 97. I had caught him plenty of times, so I knew exactly what he featured. And, like, my, I'd say three of my first six swings were home runs. And it was – really. It was it was crazy because not that I was expecting home runs, but Charlie Manuel, the general manager, Ruben Amaro Jr. Actually, he was the assistant general manager. Um, Pat Gillick, who was the general manager time, they were all back there because they wanted to watch Scott Matheson pitch. And yeah. so <laughs> I'm sending balls flying over the fence. And once again, I know it's coming, so it's not the biggest honor, but still, it's eye catching to see. You know, everyone loves a good home run, and. And uh, I get in there the next round, hit at least one more home run, maybe two, and it was just one of those things where I was, even myself, I'm like, holy crap, I I just hit home runs like that. Just, <laughs> you know, everybody watching, it was pretty cool. Um, and so it kind of got their attention a little bit, and then when the game started, um, you walk into the into the clubhouse, I, I was number 67 that year, I'm trying to think, I was number 67, so I was on the other, quote-unquote, the other side of the clubhouse. I was essentially... Uh, you know, with the AAA phrase, and so the young guys who weren't going to make the team and extra um, bodies, right? I was an extra body, right? And so, and I had been that guy every year since 2002 when I started going to major league spring trainings. Okay. So I, I knew I knew what my role was. A guy like me, my goal was to when spring training ended to make sure that they know my name. So if there's an injury at some point, they feel comfortable to call me up. That, that mm -hmm. was the goal. It wasn't to make the team out of spring training. There was almost zero chance of that happening. So, you know, and I understood that. So the first game that I got into uh, came in late. All the stars were already out of the game. And, and sure, you know, winning and losing in spring training is not that big of a deal. But you still, you want to win. Managers, they still, they, they, they don't, it's not, they're not going to lose sleep at night. But even a manager wants to win in spring training. We all want to win. So I believe my first step at was like a like a walk off, just a single down the left field line, a walk off hit. No big deal, right? And so it was, yeah. it was pretty cool for me. And then like the second game I got in, it was a it was like a game tying hit uh, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth. You know, so another you know big hit. Then all of a sudden the next day I'm starting to get a few hits, and all of a sudden this the tension is starting to brew. It's not really a big deal. And then I get to play a little bit again and get a few more big hits, and then I get a start against the Pirates. Or no, I, I take that back. I didn't get the start. I came into the game I think in the sixth inning. We were down by four runs. I hit a two-run home run um, to make it like a six-to-four game. And then with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, I come up and I tie the game with their two-run home run. And all, all of a sudden, I started getting crazy amounts of attention. When the games ended, the, the media was over on my side of the clubhouse for the first time in baseball history, basically. Really? <laughs> and I'm starting to get attention. It's a lot of fun, but I'm still not going to make the team. I was just a pretty cool star. I was a 33-year-old, nobody all of a sudden uh, getting attention. But what, what, what I had, I had Charlie Manuel, the manager, on my side because he, he was a manager of the Indians back in those days when I was in in the mile with the Indians. So he and I knew each other. He knew me. He knew the kind of player maybe I could be. The issue that I always had all those years was, even though I was primarily a catcher, I played other positions more than catcher. So that was probably the biggest reason why I was never given a shot at the major leagues is because nobody was truly convinced I could catch at a major league level. I was okay. a really good, well-rounded player, but 
I didn't run over. In fact, I ran poorly. I was way below <laughs> average foot speed. Um, but I but I was a good defender. I could play second base if needed. I was I was an average to above average first and third baseman, but not at a major league level. Um, so, which is why teams in the minor leagues love me so much. You could put me anywhere you wanted, outfield whatever else, and I could I could hold it down. But major leagues, that was not going to be my role if I was ever major league. But Charlie Manuel was the first guy. That, that said, boy, we need to see if this guy can catch. So he started letting me catch like crazy, by far the most I'd ever caught in spring trainings, and I kept getting big hits. We kept winning games. Uh, but most importantly, the stars aligned again. It seemed like every game I'd come up in a big situation and just get a big hit, and all of a sudden, now I got a chance to make the team. Well, the last week of uh, spring training, when they make most of their last cuts, I didn't get cut. And in fact, with about three days left in spring training, I'm looking on the clubhouse, and there's 25 guys in there, and, and I was one of the 25. And, it was and they keep cool. 25, right? Right, right. And so it started to be like, boy, this is you know, there's 25 guys in there. I'm only 25 guys, but at the same time, it's like it's not real yet. The last two exhibition games in spring training are always in Philadelphia. So I, we get on the plane and we go to Philadelphia, and uh, we play the first exhibition game. I think it was against the Devil Rays that year, um, or maybe the Blue Jays. I forget. But play the first game. Um, I go back to my hotel that night. My uh, my roommate was Dusty Wathen, who's now the third base coach for the Phillies, and. At that moment, the, the rosters had to be finalized the next day at like noon, I believe. So I went to bed that night. There's 25 guys in this roster still here, and I'm one of them. Holy cow. Now, there was rumblings that the Phillies were were in trade talks to bring in another outfielder because there's only four true outfielders. They wanted a fifth outfielder. We already had our two catchers in um, Mike Lieberthal and Sal Fistano. So I wasn't, it was either carry me as a third catcher and extra position player or trade for that fifth outfit. But the rosters had to be finalized the next day. So I go to bed that night. I'm either a major leaguer or my heart's going to be broken and wake up the next day, turn on the TV, and that little ticker that goes across in the bottom of ESPN was the first thing I saw was Phillies trade for outfielder David DeLucci, and I knew right mm. there that sealed my fate. So that, that oh. hit me at that point. So, um, And all along this ride that I've had, I understood, I accepted everything that happened. I never thought, boy, I should be in the major leagues or I got screwed or things like that. Yeah. That was the first time when I was like, I actually felt... You got um, robbed. I, I got robbed, right. And, and I understood the move. Don't get me wrong. I understood that they wanted a fifth outfielder, but you don't win a World Series with a fifth outfielder. And I'm not saying they win a World Series with me, although they did, but not because of the results. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I mean, it was like, uh, it was the first time where I was absolutely devastated. Like, it was, like, in your words, robbed. It was the first time where, I, not, not quit, I certainly wasn't going to quit, but I was like, I was absolutely devastated because in my mind, I was like, that's as close as I will ever come to the major leagues. Yeah, if it doesn't moment. happen now, when's it going? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I, I go back to AAA, I go back to Scranton, and the previous year I had I had 20 home runs the previous year, so I had a pretty good year. Um, and in my mind, I had 460-something in spring training that year, hit a few homers, big hits, and I was, I, all of a sudden the motivation kicked in. I'm like, I'm going to go back to Scranton, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit 20 home runs again. I'm going to hit 500. I'm going to tear the world on fire <laughs> and, and prove everybody wrong, right? Yeah. And, all of a sudden, three weeks into the season, 
I'm I have I think zero homers. I'm hitting about a buck fifty, and I feel good. I'm healthy. I'm motivated, but I just cannot hit. Um, I'm in batting practice. I'm launching balls. I'm feeling as good as I ever felt, but for whatever reason, I'm just miss hitting balls. It's just off. Um, five weeks into the season. I hit my first triple-A homer, which, once again, the previous year I had 20 on the year, so this was just one of those things where I just hit my first triple-A homer. Um, I'm hitting 177. Um, I think then the next day I hit my second triple-A homer. So I got two homers, um, and I believe at that point now I'm hitting 177. It's a Sunday about 9 a.m., um, what was it, May 21st, I believe was the date. My cell phone rings. It's my triple-A manager. And I do not answer the phone. And the reason why, as you can imagine, if you're in AAA and you're hitting 177 five weeks into the season and your manager calls, you're, you're in trouble. So wow. I let it go to voicemail. I, I pace back and forth in my hotel room thinking my career's over. Is anybody going to sign me? I'm now 30. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have been signed immediately, but I'm 33. Is, uh, do I get in the manager? Because I thought maybe my future was coaching and managing, and maybe that's my ticket to the major leagues, becoming a, a good coach, good manager. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm already planning my future. <laughs> and I, I check my voicemail, and it's uh, my manager was John Russell that year, and he says, hey, Coasty, this is JR. Give me a call back. we got some things to talk, to talk about. John Russell was always a very monotone, very emotionless guy, very stoic. Uh-huh. You'd never, re- you'd never see what his, you never knew what his emotion was, no matter what. So once again, I just assumed I'm getting released. So I, uh, I uh, muster up the nerve to call him back, and he's like, "Coasty, get your bags packed. You're going to Philadelphia." And I honestly wow. didn't, I didn't know what he meant because when. Any time in Scranton when we'd fly somewhere, because in AAA about half your road trips are flights, we always would bust to Philadelphia. So I'm like, "Jr., I, I got my car here. If I'm going home, I don't, I don't need to go to Philadelphia. I can, you know, I got my car here. I don't." He goes, "No." He goes, "No, dummy, get your bags packed. You're going to Philadelphia. You're going to the big leagues." Wow. And and I sat there for about two. It felt like about ten minutes, but I sat there for about two seconds, and I was like. And I actually said out loud, no effing way. <laughs> because I was mad. I, I, it's, it's, I know it's kind of maybe totally hard to comprehend, but I, some a little bit of anger seeped in. And here's why. Is January of that year, I had this, I had many dreams like this, but I had this dream. It was the most vivid of all the minor, any minor leaguer will tell you they've had versions of this dream. But it was the most vivid of all of these dreams. I had a dream that I, I got called up to Philadelphia. I'm walking around the ballpark. It's totally real. In the dream, I'm telling myself it's real. This is not a dream. And I'm experiencing all this. I'm a major leaguer, and all my dreams have come true, and so on and so forth. And then I wake up, and it's January 21st in Fargo, North Dakota, right? So mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm in a dream. And so there's about five seconds of anger, like I can't, uh, you know, wake up. This isn't this isn't real. <laughs> then I pinch myself like you're supposed to, and I, you know, felt the pain of, you know, pinching my arm or whatever else. And then, and I'm just, I'm like, there's no way. There's 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 no way. I'm like this, you know. Imagine if you won the lottery. You you wouldn't believe it. You know, eventually the the reality might kick in, but you would not believe it. That's mm-hmm. that's how I felt at that moment when he told me it was total disbelief and shock. No yeah, way. That's... Yeah. What circumstances brought you up? Was there an injury, a trade, something like that? And this is 
this is actually very interesting as well. Um, so then after him, I get a call from, from Ruben Amaro Jr., who was the assistant GM at the time. And he's, he says, Sal Fasano, the backup catcher, took a foul tip in the cup the night before. And I happened to be watching the game that night. So I saw him get the, the foul tip. In right the in the grapes, and, huh? <laughs> right. And so he was hurting. Well, Sal, Sal I, I've known Sal for a lot. Played against him in the minor leagues. As tough as a guy as you're ever going to find. Um, that typical Italian catcher, you, you know, built like a freight train. There was nothing. And, and he, like me, he had to fight and claw to get in the big leagues, stay in the big leagues. So there was, in my mind, unless he had to remove a testicle, he was not He was not going on this deal, right? Can I say testicle? I can't, Absolutely, I can't, right? okay. 100%. So, okay. So, so I'm like, there's no way. So at the time, I'm already on my drive, basically, to be what they what we call the holding pattern, and this happens. For, and at the time before this, I didn't know it. I didn't think I'm on the major league. And now I find out I'm driving to the ballpark just in case he can't uh, be. He wasn't going to play that day. It was a Sunday day game against the Red Sox. He wasn't going to play that day anyways. But if he's got to go on the disabled list, they need uh, uh, you know a second catcher just in case. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, well. I've seen this happen countless times. I've had plenty of teammates, AAA teammates, who fly to a particular city and then don't get activated their back. So I'm thinking, well, okay, no, I'm not going to actually be activated. But at the same time, I was pretty happy that I was on the radar. I was hitting 177 10 minutes earlier. I'm thinking I'm getting released. Now at least, holy cow, now at least I know I'm, I'm on their radar, so maybe this will happen at some point. So I'm driving to Philadelphia thinking there's no way that I'm, I'm uh, going to be on the team. Well, I get a call back about, you know, two minutes later from Ruben Mars. He's like, well, we just had a bit of a development. Um, we had a guy just retire, so you are officially on the team. And so all of a sudden wow. on my drive, I'm now on the team. And oddly enough, the guy who retired was a guy by the name of Alex Gonzalez. Played, he was a shortstop for many, like 12 years, made a ton of money, was a, you know, had a great career, maybe even an all-star at one point. He was no longer, you know, that guy. So he had, he retired, and so he was a it month was abrupt younger too, than, right? What's that? Wasn't it really abrupt? I read like overnight almost. He just said, right. He basically right. He just he was he was essentially you know the right hander off the bench, extra infielder, and he just decided, you know what? He's like, you know what? I've uh, I've had a great career, so we're gonna we're gonna call it a call it a career. And <laughs> um, ironically, he was a month younger than me. So a guy a month younger than me retired. Wow! Kickstart <laughs> Jeez, that's crazy. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Wow, that's phenomenal. Um, so take us through that day, like driving up, getting to the ballpark. What What do you remember with that whole experience? Yeah, so I get to the ballpark and I get there maybe five minutes before the game is going to start. So fans are still funneling into the ballpark. That was that was a memory I'll never forget. Just like driving on the ballpark. Because even as a minor leaguer, you, we never get to see that. We never get to see the buzz outside the ballpark for, for a game, especially at a major league game. So to mm-hmm. see that really for the first time as a player, I'm like, you know what? I'm a major league player, and these fans are coming there not to see me, literally not to see me, but like I'm a major league player. These guys, these fans are funneling for a game that I'm about to be a part of. It was truly amazing. Uh, so I get to the player's parking garage. I pull in in my uh, 2004 Mitsubishi Endeavor, which I still have, by the way. My, da- my daughter drives it. I <laughs> really nice. That car. Yep. Wow. So I pull into the parking garage. The uh, the parking attendant uh, 
He's like, uh, can I help you? I'm like, hey, uh, Chris Coast, I just got called up. I'm uh, with the Phillies. He's like, he look, he gets out this clipboard and he looks at. It. He's like, sorry, uh, sir, I don't, I don't have you on there. What was your name again? I said, no, Chris Coast. I'm, uh, I just got. He's like, I, I apologize. I don't have you on this. I can't let you in. And he's, <laughs> no he way. cracks, he cracks a smile. He says, ah, I'm just kidding, Chris. I know exactly who you are. I've been following you all of spring training. All of us are ecstatic that you're finally here. Welcome to Philadelphia. And wow, that was pretty. That was pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So, did you play that night, or no? So you... I, I get yeah, I get there. So, base at this point, the game's about to start. Uh, interleague play against the Red Sox. I go in. I um, I sign my contract. Uh, needless to say, I didn't need to read it. Uh, what was I going to read it for? I was a major league player, <laughs> so I didn't didn't need anybody to look it over, as you can imagine. So. I, I signed my uh, my autograph officially on a contract, which is pretty sweet. I go into the locker room or the clubhouse real quick, and I see my jersey, you know, hanging up number twenty-seven with uh, Coast on the back. And I quickly put on my uniform, trying to fight the tears and amazement and and total disbelief, and put my uniform on. I run through the tunnel into the you know down the stairs and back up the other stairs up into the dugout. The sun kind of hit me in the face. I look up and I see Corey Lytle strike out Manny Ramirez to end the top of the first inning. That was my first major. Oh, so you, wow, you got dressed like beginning of the game. Yep, yeah, so the game had just started, and it, uh, yeah, so when I, like I said, when I arrived at the ballpark, the game was just about to start. Fans were still uh, filing in, and um, yeah, pretty cool. When you signed that agreement, I'm sure you noticed a couple extra zeros in what you were used to, right? Or did you not even have well, time to look at that? No, I, I knew what the major league minimum was. I believe it was three hundred twenty-seven thousand that year. So, um, which not you know, bad. In the grand scheme, yeah, it's uh, and obviously when you have players making millions and millions, it's not as much comparatively, but it's still a crazy amount of money. And I flash back to making seven hundred bucks a month with the Red Hawks. Right. So absolutely. All of a sudden, this is pretty. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. Yeah. Very cool. So take us through your like debut, like actually playing for the first time. So I didn't really get into games for quite a while. It just was one of those situations where just, you know, I was the extra guy. I was, the, I was the, the third catcher, you know, whatever. So I wasn't going to play much of it all. So I knew my time there was probably going to be limited. At least that's what it seemed like. And a lot of it was going to be Aaron Rowan had just got on the disabled list with, if you remember the highlight of him smashing into the fence, remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so so he was in the disabled list, so it seemed like once he came off the disabled list, which was going to be maybe two weeks, I was probably going to go back to AAA. So that's kind of what I was prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, I, I, I got... My, my first game action, I or my first at-bat, I, I, I got into the game, um, I think it was like the seventh or eighth inning. My first at bat, I faced. They brought in a reliever, Jose Capion, hard throwing right hander from the Brewers. And I was always a notorious first ball fastball hitter, but I told myself if I ever get a major league at bat, I may only get once. So I got to you know savor it, take some pitches, make it last. But I get up there and I'm like. The, he's going to throw me a first pitch fastball. He did. He threw it 97 right down the middle, and I had a great swing, and I just barely missed it, popped it up to center field. It was one of those where you'd rather just swing and miss and maybe strike out because when you get that, I knew I was about a millimeter away from putting about 420 feet to left center. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was over in one pitch. 
And so it was this amazement of like, I just had a major league at bat, but at the same time, I felt so like unfulfilled or unsatisfied. Will I ever get another <laughs> at bat? Um, the next night, I get double switched into the game uh, as a catcher. So I was in the batting cage, just kind of getting loose. And now I'm just immediately into the game. I got to throw my gear. It's like a bad dream of where's my gear? Where's my shin guards? Where's... So I get in the game. There's two outs. Um, I'm catching Jeff Geary. One of our pitchers comes in to pitch. I'm catching. We're going over signs, and he's trying to tell me all these signs. I'm like, Jeff, I don't know what the hell you're telling me. This is my major league defensive debut. I'm just going to give you one or two fingers, and we're going to stick with that. Because <laughs> like I said, I, there was no way. I, yeah, there's no way I was going to be able to concentrate on touches and signs. There's <laughs> all this, you know, whatever. So Brady Clark was the batter. And he he hits a weak ground ball to third base, but he hit my catcher's mitt on his swing. And oh, the really? umpire, myself, and Brady were the only three in the entire ballpark who knew that happened. David Bell, our third baseman, fields the ball, throws it over to first base to what should be the inning ending. Everyone runs off the field except for me, the umpire, and Brady Clark. And they got to send everyone back on the field. And that was my essentially major league debut was me having a wow. catcher's interference in front of the, what seemed like the whole world. I wanted to crawl into a hole and retire. <laughs> it was it was just incredible. Luckily, uh, a couple pitches later, we got the third out. But for, for about a minute, it was my major league, essentially my major league debut. And I was like, one of the lowest points I ever had as a major leaguer was that first minute it was it was both amazing and terrible at the same time <laughs> so um you got if i remember right did you get sent down shortly thereafter like you had mentioned before no i never i never got sent down you that didn't. year nope i i kept waiting for it waiting for it and the big moment honestly was when aaron rowan uh, what what had happened was i i started to play a little bit a little bit more um because I, I don't know, it was like Salfasano, I think, had a little bit of a banged-up knee, maybe. So I started to play just a little bit more, and all of a sudden I'm 0 for 1, then I'm 0 for 4, then I'm 0 for 7, and I'm 0 for 10, and then I get a start against uh, uh, the Devil Rays that year, and I'm hitting the ball pretty well, but I'm, I'm 0 for but I'm getting to play a little bit. Um, my first at-bat, I hit a screaming line drive to left center. Well, Rocco Baldelli, you know, most of us know him as a Twins manager, but he was a hell of a good outfielder. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he was, was above average when he outfielder. Wasn't hurt. He, that guy could right, play. When he, right, when he wasn't hurt. And he, he was a gazelle out there. He ran it down like it was nothing. Didn't even make a great play, just ran it down like it was nothing. I was like, how am I ever, I mean, this is kind of a microcosm of my entire career. I get here and I can't, I get so close, but I can't get a hit. Finally, my next at bat, I get that first hit, uh, line drive up the middle. It scored, um, I scored a run. I get my so I'm on, I'm standing on first base. I got my first major league hit. I'm pretty happy about it. Then all of a sudden, the reality I'm hitting. I'm one for fourteen. I'm like I better get some hits or I'm they're gonna send me other. So <laughs> the the excitement of getting that first hit immediately left was the greed of like okay now I got to stay here. And all of a sudden the hits just started coming. I was like if I broke the bat in ten pieces. It was a blooper between short and left field. You know, it was just one of those just things where the stars it. kept yep, kept aligning. And all of a sudden, Sal Fasano was coming off the DL. Aaron Rowan was coming off the DL, and they had a decision to make. And and they decided to keep me over Sal Fasano. And that was a huge, huge moment because Sal Fasano was an above-average catcher. He was a pretty decent hitter. Not that he wasn't known for it, but great teammate. 
very veteran presence, and they decided to keep me because I started, to, you know, started to do pretty well. And we started, even though we weren't winning a ton of games and playoffs seemed unlikely. When I played, we seemed to win a lot, and it wasn't because of me. It's just you know, it happened that way. And so, uh, made that decision was was huge. And then all of a sudden, I started to have success individually. Then we started to win a little bit more, and all of a sudden, before you know it, I went from one for fourteen. All of a sudden, now I'm hitting two fifty. And he now got I'm the Coast hitting, Guard following you, right? And then I got the, and that's another great story too. So <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because Philadelphia is really well known for their their like the fan clubs like that. I had a I had a fan club for one night before that, and here's what it was. It was it was called Coast Ghosts. So they were dressed <laughs> up like ghosts. So there was about ten guys or gals, whatever, ten, ten guys dressed up there, and they had sheets over their heads. So all of a sudden they're up there in the corner and the camera pans on Coast Ghost. I'm like, wow, I got a fan. This is pretty amazing. I all of a sudden I get this arm around me. It's Jimmy Rollins, and he's like, Coasty, what the hell is that? They look like Ku Klux Klan members with the shoes. Oh on. no, <laughs> that's what they look like. And sure. so Jimmy Rollins Jeez. just jokingly comes right. up to me. He's like, Coasty, what the hell is that? And right when he said <laughs> it, I knew exactly. I'm like, oh my goodness. They never oh. came. They, they then they they probably realized at that point what they looked like. So when they came back for the next night as a Coast Guard. So then that stuck the next uh, next few years. So I got my own little fan club. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I want to I want to just finish with with the rest of the 2006 season, and hopefully you can join us again and kind of take us through the the World Series and um, you know the rest of your career and and even like the transition into coaching and, and what's what that's been like, but. Just to round out the 2006 season, going to take us through, um, I guess, the rest of the year and some of the things that stand out. Yeah, pretty amazing year as a team and individually for a lot of reasons, and kind of here's why. So at the trade that all of a sudden I'm, I'm kind of established as a, as a major league player. I'm, I'm catching two to three to sometimes four times a week. I went from batting eighth, all of a sudden batting sixth. I batted fifth on occasion, which was insane at a major league level. Um, but yeah. mostly about at seventh and eighth, and and I'm hitting all of a sudden, and my batting average goes up. And we talked about the John Smoltz home run, and then I just get a couple more home runs. And at the trade deadline, we were sellers, so we traded away Bobby Abreu, Corey Lytle. Um, so we had pretty much given up. Then all of a sudden, you know, we get in Jamie Moyer, we get in I think it was Jeff Conine, maybe. Um, and all of a sudden, we started winning games. In the last week of the season, at one point, we might have had like a half game lead in the wild card. I can't totally remember, but we're in a playoff hunt all of a sudden. And, and I'm catching the majority of those games. And we end up falling short. We uh, I think we got eliminated the last game of the season or second to last day. Um, where we just ended up, we came, you know, a millimeter away from being a playoff team. And I would have been the main catcher that year. So it was truly an amazing year for me, for myself. Obviously, I broke through. I established myself as a major leaguer. I had individual success. But that that year really set us on the path towards 2007 making the playoffs in the World Series in 2008 because when they traded away Bobby Abreu, who, who, he was an amazing teammate and an amazing player. But when they traded him away, it immediately became Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley's team. And the the image changed, the mentality changed, okay. um, and and all of a sudden those superstars became superstars. It became their mm-hmm. team. They became leaders. And that trade deadline, even though we were sellers, we traded away you know one of our best pitchers and our best overall player at the time. That right there became that set us on the path towards the World Series in two thousand eight. 
the 2008 season. That's awesome, man. Well, I don't want to take up too much time here, and I'm, I'm open that uh, you know another time we can we can pick up where we left off here and get into the World Series run and um, some other things, rest of the career. Yeah, absolutely. If, Anytime. If you could. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it again for taking the time, and it was a lot of fun to catch up. Yeah, a lot of fun. My adrenaline's going. I'm going to go get a workout in right now. I've yeah. Really <laughs> good stuff, so let's do it again. Awesome, man. Heck of a story. Thank you. And boom, there it is. Chris Coast, thanks again for sharing your story. Hope you guys enjoyed it. A couple of my takeaways before I sign off here is... You just think about his preparation and his hard work, and he was ready to go. Every spring, he was ready to go. When he got his opportunities, he was ready. And it was really, to me, no coincidence that he was able to perform. All right, his mindset was, I got to be ready at all times. He was. When he was given the opportunities, he took advantage of them. That's number one. And number two, if you love something, and you love it enough, and you really want something, you're going to get it. At some point, you're going to get it. And if this story doesn't tell you that, I don't know what's going to. So thanks again, Coaster. Thank you guys for listening. One day it's going to be a movie. You watch. All right, guys. Until next time, learn, try, know, and achieve. Hum, babe.